Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. So, uh, now we're going to listen to the final session of the 1994 workshop that Terrence McKenna led. In the uh, last podcast, we left off as the Saturday afternoon session ended. But after listening to the Saturday evening session, I've decided not to podcast it, uh, mainly because I'm quite sure that you would find it really boring. (laughs) How can that be, you say? Terrence is never boring. Well, on that Saturday night, the entire session was given over to Terrence's class on how to use the TimeWave software on a PC. And uh, basically, it was a computer instruction class where uh, much of the time was spent with Terrence saying things like, now press the up arrow key, now press the enter key, (laughs) and exciting things like that. But uh, trust me, I, I really don't think we're missing anything by skipping the Saturday night session. Now, I uh, hope that in a few minutes, when you hear Terrence making a joke about being recruited by the mushroom, and where he says, they recruited me, and then he goes on to say that they eventually moved him into public relations. Well, I do hope that you're discerning enough to realize that he was joking about this. Uh, However, as we all know, there are uh, a few paranoid people out there who are quite convinced that uh, Terrence and Leary and Sasha and the whole lot of them are all CIA mind control agents that are out to get you and me. And uh, now that I think of it, uh, if someone is that paranoid, they probably think that that's true of me, too. (laughs) After all, I was a lieutenant commander in the Navy, and I held a top-secret security clearance. In fact, maybe I should even suspect myself. Did they turn me into a Manchurian candidate? (laughs) Or better yet, maybe I should just stop being so goofy and uh, simply play the final recording of a workshop given by Terrence McKenna in December of 1994. And uh, this conversation took place early on a Sunday morning, by the way. As old pilots like to say, I think we're turning final here. (laughs) These weekends tear past with amazing rapidity. Uh, And I, I was lying in bed last night thinking of everything that was not said. And it seemed like hardly anything was said. Uh, uh, I don't know what that means. I, in myself personally, I've noticed in the last year or so a sense that the vision or the thinking about our circumstance has become almost for me like a full-time job. I, I really don't want to go anywhere and I don't want to do anything. I just want to hold the understanding in my uh, mind. And I, I don't know exactly where this is leading. It's probably leading to writing uh, more books and, and doing less uh, traveling. Uh, in terms of launching various memes, I think they're pretty well launched. I, uh, the idea that the psychedelic experience needs to be uh, given a place in the social toolkit, uh, the idea that we need to 
seriously revision our relationship to nature and the future. I think all these things have come a distance. Uh, yeah. I'm real curious about one thing. Why is it important for you to do this? I wonder myself. Um, <laughs> you mean, am I the uh, alien ambassador, whether I like it or not? <laughs> Well, I, often when asked this question, I've said, you know, it beats honest work. I mean, my brother is a PhD in three subjects and uh, works in hard science, and uh, it, I don't think it's brought him immense happiness, not that he's despondent, but uh, I was always kind of a slider. Uh, <laughs> You know, and uh, certainly when I reached La Chirera in 1971, I had a price on my head by the FBI. I was running out of money. I was at the end of my rope. And then uh, they recruited me <laughs> and said, you know, with a mouth like yours, there's a place for you in our organization. And... Um, you know, I've worked in deep background positions about which the best, the less said, the better. And then, you know, about 15 years ago, they shifted me into public relations, and I've been there uh, to the present. Uh, I think ideas get me high, uh, and I like the feeling of understanding. And uh, I love diversity to the point of weirdness. I mean, I... There's more to it than that for you because, you know, being tuned into ideas and turned on by ideas is one thing, but you can keep that just to yourself. The sharing of it is something else. I think that's what I'm getting. Why do you do that? Well, one thing is I'm really fascinated. I, I think of myself as a pretty savvy person and not uh, easily led into false dogma. And yet, this is such a strange idea. And so it's basically a plea for help. I am, I, it's, it's, it's not a cult. It's not that I want you to join me in believing in this. It's that this is so outlandish that join me as a scientist would join a research team and let's cut it to pieces and show that it was simply a misunderstanding of information theory coupled with bad mathematics spliced onto a weak ontology or something <laughs> like that, you know? Um, because this I, 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 could under, I could live with the time wave if I only had to read about it in Time magazine and that it was being developed by Negroponte and Prigozhin, the thing that sets up the cognitive dissonance for me is that I, from the point of view of most people, thought it up. And I am so aware of my limitations that to me that's the strongest argument there is, that it's malarkey, you know? Uh, and yet, that's not a fair argument against an idea. In rhetoric, that's called the ad hominem argument, the argument to the man. That's when you get up and say, well, we shouldn't follow Jesse Helms because he's short and ugly. 
you know, that's not allowed. That's a below-the-belt move. Uh, so, and then I read books like Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, and it says, you know, this is how it happens. Some guy, marginal, not at the center of the field, uh, and somewhat at loose ends, but usually with a broad education, gets it, you know? I mean, it happened to Einstein. He was a telegrapher. It happened to Alfred Russell Wallace. He was a surveyor who couldn't make a living, and so he went to Indonesia to collect butterflies for the British Museum. And we could multiply uh, these examples ad infinitum. So, uh, but I have spent a lot of time educating myself about what it would mean if this were true. In other words, how big a revolution is it? And it's an enormous revolution. The implications are staggering. For example, if it's true that time is a fluctuating variable, as this so strongly argues, then science as practiced for the past 500 years is out the window because that kind of science is based on the concept of experiment. And experiment has built into it the concept of what's called a restoration of initial conditions. That means you can go back to the start and run the experiment again. This is saying, as Heraclitus said, you never step into the same river twice. And consequently, the idea of, of repetitive experiment is shown to be intellectually bankrupt. You could almost say... Pardon me? have recognized that. Well, some have and some haven't. Uh, the idea that you would specify in a physics experiment that it should be done only when the moon is in Scorpio to obtain the correct results would get you... Uh, but those experiments are primarily Newtonian in, in orientation, are they not? I mean, well, give me an example of a time-dependent physical experiment recognized by science. I mean, you know, dropping a ball out of the Tower of Pisa. Well, it doesn't matter what time you do it. That's my point. That's my point. That, that we could almost say of science that it is the study of those phenomena so crude that the time in which they occur does not affect them. And so falling balls, uh, you know, gas diffusion, simple things, it doesn't matter where in time they occur. But things like the building of an empire, the waging of a war, the evolution of a species, the conquest of a biome by a new set of genes, these things, timing is everything and dictates success or failure. Did you want to say something? Yeah, that's a very interesting point because the anthropic, uh, the weak anthropic cosmological principle is, it argues that life evolved at about the right time. If, if, if things had started up, a little bit later, a little bit sooner, at least around this sun, it, it wouldn't necessarily have gotten a kickstart. The conditions were no longer quite right. Um, the incubator was set to just the right temperature when the gases were at just the right concentrations and so on. And uh, Stephen Gould has pointed out that um, you, we couldn't even play the tape over again if, if, if you started off with life 
at, at one of the early conditions three and a half billion years ago and then ran it forward again, we wouldn't have ended up with people and we wouldn't have ended up with the kinds of species we have. <coughs> there, there are too many bifurcation points that can take place along the line. So there's actually two points there. Yes, well, this is essentially what this is saying. Uh, ordinary science says that evolution proceeds by the random mixing of genes then subject to natural selection dictated by environmental parameters. And out of that you do get a creative advance or an advance into morphological complexity, but very slowly. And I think that what the time wave shows is that the deck, the cosmic deck, is stacked in favor of novelty so that it isn't a 50-50 every time you throw the dice that it's going to go toward entropy or order. Uh, actually, uh, order is favored, and so order emerges and is conserved over time. Uh, or novelty, I prefer the term novelty because to me chaos doesn't signify disorder. It I view it in the new way. Um, well, anyway, maybe that's enough about that. I didn't intend such a long opening statement. It must be this coffee. <laughs> you know, what you were saying sounds like, I think it was uh, just recently, a couple months ago, the Hubble constant, the Hubble telescope has thrown things in question. And, uh, you know, I think, have you pursued that? Yes, I follow all that very carefully. I touched on it in my lecture by implication last night. It was in my mind when I said how so much of science recently has been about answering the question, when? When? Uh, this, there is huge controversy raging at this moment in astrophysics because... Uh, well, here's the background. In the 1920s, Edwin Hubble uh, studied uh, variable stars and in an effort to establish what are called absolute or reliable candles for measuring cosmic distance, knowing that if he could very accurately calibrate the radiance of, these, of this certain type of star, that then he could calculate how that radiance would diminish at distance. And uh, he, there is a number involved with Hubble's name called the Hubble constant. And if you set it high, the universe is young. Did I get it right? And if you set it low, the universe is old. And furious battles are now raging because the, there is data coming in both from the Hubble telescope, ironically, yeah. named after Edwin Hubble. There is data coming in there that is supporting the idea, I believe, that using standard mathematics, the universe is young. In fact paradoxically, younger than some of the oldest stars in it, which doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense. Uh, conversely, from a different set of instruments, looking at a different part of the, of the radio or electromagnetic universe, uh, low Hubble constants values are coming in, implying that the universe is... 18 to 22 billion years old rather than 6 to 8 uh, or, or 8 to 10. 
and uh, as far as the time wave is concerned, um, I was looking at this and I realized I should issue a, a press release and make a prediction and say that according to my calculations, the age of the universe is precisely X and then see where these other people come down. I, 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 I think the time wave favors the idea that the universe is about 17 and a half billion years old. And, and that is in agreement with the data that is not contain an internal contradiction. I find the idea of a universe 8 billion years old almost as unlikely as a universe 4,306 years old. I feel real cramped in a, in a 10 billion year old universe. That is not enough. Well, I was just thinking that if the, if the Hubble constant had a variation in time, that would probably describe it. Maybe your formulas might point to how it might vary in time. Or we have a locally uh, varying um, Hubble constant. Um, well, that yes, you, you, you raise a whole bunch of interesting issues here. Uh, look, this, look at how presumptuous science is. First of all, all of modern physics is based around the concept of constants. The central, and some of these are non-dimensional constants, but some are not, like the speed of light. Well, uh, the speed of light has been measured on this planet since 1906. Less than a hundred, uh, uh, just under a hundred years of measurement in a in a multi-billion-year-old universe carried out on one planet. And from this, you make the grand statement that the speed of light in all times and all places will obey this law of velocity? Give me a break. It's, it's just, a, it's just a, a kind of a joke. Uh, and yet, to admit that there is a problem here... Uh, would seriously undermine the premises of science. Things are worse than that. Throughout the 20th century, of course, the speed of light has been measured many, many times. Now, uh, the same value is rarely obtained. Now, the f all of physics depends upon this being a universal constant. So when you point out to them that the same value is rarely obtained, they, they wave their hands and say, ah, well, this has to do with the limits of the instrumentality, a term which will not be further defined. <laughs> this has to do with the limits of the instrumentality, and uh, we, they're just hitting around it, Right? So at first, you, the uneducated layman, you think, well, that makes sense, I suppose. They're just hitting around it. But then you go back and you look at these measurements of the speed of light, and you know what? They don't cluster around the point. Since 1906, successive measurements of the speed of light seem to imply that it's incrementally going slightly faster. The set of data points is drifting slightly across the thing. Well, now, how, if it's at the limits of the instrumentality, can you possibly explain that? Well, this became such an issue in the astrophysics community, and check this out, that what they did is in 1972, they defined 
the speed of light. <laughs> and, they, and they said, this is the speed of light. And all future calculations should use this number regardless of what the instruments are telling you. An an momentous turning point in the evolution of scientific thought. At last, nature itself is deemed no longer necessary for the study of nature. And in fact, it just gets in the way. Anyway, I can go on at great length about the foibles of, of science, but uh, it's just fun to rib them. Yeah. We're back to scholasticism, I guess. But um, by the same argument, couldn't you say how long is a year, especially when you're talking about births of universes um, in which Earths revolving around suns haven't yet evolved to measure the year that we're now measuring the whole schmear in? Well, you mean why... I'm not sure I understand you. Do you mean why do we place so much emphasis on the year count in the theory? Well, how can you in a way because... Well, it doesn't really. What it depends on is a a 384-day cycle and which if you were to press me, and I guess you are, uh, as to why is it a 384-day cycle, well, it's 13 lunations, yes, but... There's something mysterious going on there, and probably a good Newtonian could explain it to us. I, you know, they do these studies, these uh, geochronological studies using coral fossils, and they believe that the year length, that the year is slowly shrinking, and that about uh, a billion years ago, the year length would have been about 384 days. And I suspect that the evolution of DNA, that there must have been, that the fact that the DNA runs on 64 and the I Ching runs on 64 and this number 384 keeps coming up in relationship to the lunation and the possible solar year length, I think that essentially the DNA must have frozen in itself a kind of picture of the various orbital and geomagnetic resonances that existed in the solar system or in the terrestrial environment at the time it came into existence. I mean, that's just my guess, but it it would fit. Do you see what I mean? And then the fact that it's 13 lunations, the the moon is despun tidally despun. That's why we always see one face locked on the earth, because it makes one revolution in the time that it makes one orbit. And that's the consequence of that. And it it may be that... uh, uh, Well, I'm not sure what I'm trying to say, but that there was a coupling of some sort between the Sun-Earth-Moon system a billion years ago that made a 384-day year uh, possible. But my point is, before that, when we're talking about the, dis- the time between oh, I see what the you're Big asking. Bang and planets, how long is a year? Oh, well, my assumption is that the real formative cycles are quantum mechanical in dimension. In other words... We talk about a 384-day cycle, then we talk about a six-day cycle, 
then an hour and 35 minute cycle and then a minute and a half or something. But it's the cycles below, say, uh, 10 to the minus 12 seconds. Uh, in other words, the whole universe, I assume, is some kind of amplification of quantum mechanical instability. And you and I have talked about how uh, biology seems to be a chemical strategy for amplifying quantum mechanical indeterminacy so that it leaves the subatomic realm and can be present you know, in a 145-pound uh, block of meat. Uh, I mean, that is what it is. The, f- the phenomenon of free will is uh, quantum mechanically amplified determinacy in this complex chemical system that we call organic life. So uh, the year thing isn't important. What's important is probably something down in the realm of Planck's constant, some slip in the cosmic machinery at a very basic level that that was then exploded and amplified out into the phenomenal universe. I mean, the real question is why there is anything at all, you know, I mean, why that this state was preferred over a state of pure nothingness, which would appear to be the bottom of the energy uh, uh, well. Yeah. You've done a lot of thinking about morphological <laughs> resonances of different sorts, and there's one that I've encountered that I really can't shake loose. I wonder if you have a comment on it. I, You know, reading about the brain the estimates of the total number of neurons <coughs> is about 100 billion. And as you read about cosmology, you, you read that the average spiral galaxy is thought to have 100 billion suns in it, and the total number of galaxies in the universe is estimated to be around 100 billion. And I recently encountered the estimate that the total number of biomolecules in a cell is about 100 billion. And it seems like this coincidence uh, keeps coming up, and, and maybe it's related to Paul Dirac's idea of a large number. Well, I think it, it is true that emergent uh, properties come out of large aggregations. Uh, the, always the textbook example is, you know, if you have two H2O molecules, that's water, but you don't have wetness. Wetness doesn't emerge until you have thousands of H2O molecules. And so the wetness of water is a property which only emerges when you have millions of these molecules together. And uh, it, it does appear that complex neural nets have to be above 9 billion operating subunits. And so, you know, it may be that, I mean, definitely we are pushing toward criticality in many, in any area of measurement. Uh, for example, you know, if you look at the curve of energy release or the population curve or the curve of information production or the curve of uh, advancing velocity, you see that uh, many of these curves will become asymptotic in, in the near future. And that's what I mean when I say we're headed into this domain of boundary dissolution and hypernovel uh, inflationary evolution, you could almost call it. Yeah. Asymptotic. Isn't that well? Asymptotic is uh, when it it not it, it's not doubling every time you measure it. It's it's being squared. Isn't that it? Each time. 
So it's, it goes logarithmic, asymptotic, and then there's another term for an even rapid, more rapid expansion. Yeah. When I read futurist books on futurists, you know, I've been with several things like that, they talk very similar to what you're saying, that the radical changes that are coming, but they're looking at all the, the denominators of what they feel would cause this. And their sense of chaos is what you're talking about in a different way. Economic chaos, health chaos. Our, our earth is headed for a tremendous upheaval in the cities, the, the concentration right. of so many people together in these megalithic centers of humanity and are so disconnected with their who the, what man is that they're, they're saying the same thing that you're saying in a different way. I mean, they are saying the same thing. Mm. Yes, well, as you see, they feel that they own the planet, and so they're very alarmed. I mean, wouldn't you be if it were your property? And you say, my God, what is going on? We have to get hold of the neighborhood. Uh, but, but my faith is that uh, the, the, the horse knows where it wants to go. And we're all being carried along for the ride. And, you know, Mitsubishi, the Catholic Church, whoever wants to try and control it is welcome to try. But it's a perverse thing. I mean, we who think of ourselves as little people imagine that owning the earth must be a great uh, uh, pleasure. But actually, you know, the number of ulcer tablets being consumed in the chancelleries, bourses, and embassies of this planet seems to argue that thinking you own the world is an enormous headache and aggravation. Uh, the chaos is roving through the system and able to undo at any point the best laid plans all kinds of things are happening. First of all, there are all these fields of research ranging from cryogenics, nanotechnology, psychedelic pharmacology, disease control, machine-human interfacing. You know, you could just list these things endlessly. And at any moment, one of these fields could make a breakthrough so fundamental that everything would be changed. And we have, you know... 50 of these irons going in the fire all the time. At the same time, because the planetary uh, culture is becoming ever more closely knitted together, it's, all its parts are becoming codependent. So, for instance, um, an earthquake which destroys central Tokyo would ruin the economy of Belgium because the retraction of Japanese capital from world markets would set up reverberations that would be felt everywhere. The system is being slaved ever more tightly to various portions of itself. Crop failure in Russia causes, you know, strikes in Argentina and so forth and so on. And this will accelerate. Well, then, the task of management somehow, is to bring this coalescing system through uh, this transition period without the whole thing getting so much vibration built up into it that it falls apart. And so it's very alarming to see barbarism 
uncontrolled in the world to see, you know, people being pushed into boxcars on their way to extermination camps and all this. This means that all the, that the global control systems uh, are, are uh, in danger of breaking down. And I, I think that the world corporate state is running hard to keep up. National governments do not understand what is going on. National governments are underpaid, understaffed, and under-talented. World corporate uh, divisions uh, of various sorts do understand what is going on, but they are in the process of taking power from the national states as rapidly as possible in order to use that power to, to manage the planet in a somewhat less ideologically hysterical fashion. I mean, they want to make money, you know, but that's a different thing than wanting to convert everybody to Islam, Marxism, or National Socialism, or something like that. I'm fascinated by management because it's the large-scale understanding and integration of human systems. And that's the real challenge. I mean, it's all very fine to take these mathematical novel, uh, models and write and describe the behavior of the dripping faucet, as was done very creatively. And, but the purpose of all this modeling is to eventually take control of our own relationships to each other and to the world and to the future and to, you know, to the future generations. It's somewhat paradoxical, though, because management would appear to be key, yet what we're talking about managing can't be managed. No, but what can be managed is our anxiety about it. In other words, I think of it as though what we're in is an aircraft, a cultural airfoil moving through history. And the challenge is change your uh, Sopwith camel into an F-18 in flight because we're going faster and faster and faster and cue forces, vibration, are beginning to build up on all the airfoils. And so what we have to do is transform the cultural engine or the forward acceleration into the temporal medium will burn the wings off and rip the airfoil apart. What you're talking about is metamorphosis. Would you comment on examples of metamorphosis in nature to what's going on there? Well, the perfect example is, of course, insect metamorphosis, which if you read my book, uh, The... Um, True Hallucinations, and I think it's mentioned in The Invisible Landscape, there was a great deal of talk about insect metamorphosis in, in, at La Chirera. I've always, and I've never received a satisfactory answer to the question put to evolutionary biologists, how do you account for the metamorphosis of insects, where, like in the case of butterflies, hundreds, if not thousands, of genes have to be coordinated perfectly to take a caterpillar, dissolve all its body tissue, and have it completely reconstruct itself as another kind of organism. I'm trying to imagine an evolutionary scenario of gradual mutation that would give you that is, I can't do it. It must have happened largely instantaneously in a single uh, in a single massive rearrangement 
of hundreds and hundreds of genes. And we don't see that much in animal life. We see large-scale polyploidy in plants. So maybe this happened in, or in animal tissue only once or twice in the life of the planet. But it gave this insect adaptation, which is astonishing, you know. And in a way, what we're doing is repeating that metamorphosis on a, on a metaphorical as well as physical plane. I mean, we are rather like worms. And we have built a society that is somewhat, you know, might ungenerously be described as a carrion pile. But uh, there is apparently in us uh, the capacity to evolve to this other form. And there is, as long as we're roving through exotic biological metaphors here, there is a phenomenon in biology called neoteny. Neoteny is the preservation of juvenile characteristics into adulthood. And we, as a, as a primate species, exhibit advanced forms of neoteny. This is why we are hairless to adulthood. Um, this is why our skull-to-body ratio remains infantile compared to other primates throughout life. It's why we require such a long period of physical upbringing. Well, there are certain animals uh, that will remain in the juvenile stage their entire lifetime unless certain environmental parameters shift. And what I mean by that is, say you have a kind of, uh, of uh, 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 salamander. Well, it exists as a kind of a tadpole its entire life, and for generations it can do this, living as a tadpole. But if uh, the pool dries up, the organisms in the pool at that time suddenly discover that they have the capacity to develop lungs and crawl out onto the land. And they do, even though perhaps this hasn't been done uh, in that neighborhood for generations. And I think we are sort of in that position. We have a capacity inside ourselves that we have not yet unfolded. And we may not for a while. When things really get nutty, Part of the getting nutty is that we will discover present in our human population all the time were mutants of certain types that had no evolutionary advantage as long as bourgeois society and uh, uh, Judeo-Christian ethics were in place. But when that begins to shake and shimmer, then these mutant types will uh, emerge to the fore. This is how evolution works, by the way, in animal populations. The mutants are always present, but they have no consequence unless the environmental parameters shift and give them then a special advantage. And I think being able to see hyperspatially is the special adaptive advantage that psychedelic plants confer upon the people who use them. It is literally, you see the world with different eyes, and uh, it's going to make it possible for you to find your way through uh, the future in a way that will be very difficult for people who are looking at the situation through the eyes of materialism, 
Newtonianism, positivism, and so forth. Yeah. That's the question I guess that keeps coming up to me. Was what what are, what are we supposed to do? Yeah, I keep thinking that you know. too. Well, I keep saying, de-emphasize anxiety. Reassure people. You meet people who say, you know, I'm really scared. I'm scared about my job. I'm scared about my relay. I'm scared, scared, scared. And so you you know, don't worry. You don't know enough to worry. That's God's truth. Who do you think you are that you should worry for crying out loud? Uh, I mean, it's a total waste of time. It presupposes such a knowledge of the situation that it is, in fact, a form of hubris. You know? Now, what you do is just pay your bills and, you know, pack heat if you need to and don't worry. That's all. <laughs> yes. Someone just told me, don't worry, don't take it so seriously because none of us are going to get out of alive. <laughs> well, no, that's a more dismal conclusion. <laughs> Worry is praying to the devil. That's great. Worry is betting against yourself. You know, Weipo Yang, the, a great Chinese Taoist who wrote many, many commentaries on the I Ching, he was asked at the end of his life what was his conclusion of a life of studying the I Ching. And he said, Worry is preposterous that was it if we are serious about who we are and not ashamed of our dreams then we have to build on the scale of solar systems I mean we have the imaginative power to be a galactarian civilization it's just that we have a pissant control of energy at the moment but if, if there's somebody out there who needs consulting you know, somebody who does have hyper-light drive and time travel, but just doesn't know what to do with it, ask us. We are uh, very creative. Uh, and I've tracked this very closely in the literature. And up until about five years ago, time travel definitely, if you were writing about that, you were a squirrel. Nobody was talking about that. And since then, uh, Scientific American has devoted an entire issue to it. Uh, Nick Herbert, who I do not consider a squirrel, wrote an excellent book about it. Uh, there have been articles in Physical Review, and it's, all, it's gone from, it's completely impossible, don't even think of it, to, well, certain thought experiments can be imagined, which do seem to imply, well, that's how relativity got started, you know, talking about trains passing each other at the speed of light and what would happen if. It, it's so hard to make people understand because we're in this new age environment of fishy thinking. But the entities inside the DMT trance are real entities. I mean, they're as real as you and I are. You would have trouble proving your own ontological validity uh, if pressed by a skilled philosopher. So they're as real as we are. Well, this then has to be taken seriously. Questions like, where are they? Who are they? What do they know? Uh, because they're intelligent. 
And we're intelligent and we've been yapping about space people and all this malarkey. You know, they are here. If flying saucers landed on the south lawn of the White House tomorrow, it wouldn't be as weird as what happens to you when you smoke DMT. It would just be a news story, something for NASA to take over. Chomsky would explain it to us, the <laughs> linguistic side, I mean. But you personally can meet the alien anytime you want, and the culture can meet the alien anytime they want. Well... Are these things here for no reason? Are we just sort of there on their trip and we're on our trip? Or have they come for us? Is there a message? Is there a purpose? Uh, and, and why does this seem so drenched in, in, in super technologies and intimations of time travel? I mean, uh, are these things dead souls? Are they a future state of humanity that's come back a hundred million years to the dawn ages of, of intelligence to observe, uh, you know, the discovery of starflight? What is happening it, it needs to be looked at. And, you know, uh, I, got, I went into this very deeply w with shamanism, but shamanism is a set of culturally sanctioned explanations for people who didn't know how to ask the kinds of questions we ask. And so you can only go so far with that. And eventually you realize, you know, Jung won't help you, or Merci Eliad, or no. You have to make sense of this on uh, on your own terms. It's very unexpected that this would happen. Uh, I came, I always assumed I would be a uh, aeronautical engineer or some, something like that. I I never thought, and I never thought that the culture would turn ninety degrees and discover in, you know, the, the, the biology of the planet an alien intelligence. I mean, that's what the 20th century will probably be remembered for, and very few of us can even articulate it to ourselves. You know, in the way that the, the 15th century discovered the new world, the 20th century discovered the parallel continuum. It begins with Freud and noticing something about the fantasies of these Viennese housewives and, you know, then Jung splicing in the myths and, and then the surrealists and Iliad and then the drug people come along and Huxley and so forth until finally people say, as that wonderful line in Rosemary's Baby, my God, this is really happening. <laughs> you know, yes, what did you think? <laughs> Over here. Uh, I have a question. Um, lecture, from what I understand, and I'm not a mathematician, but they're using formulas based on uh, double pyramids and tetrahedric. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, that these kinds of occult calculations, this is a legitimate way to proceed. This is how Kepler modeled the solar system, you know, was by putting the Greek uh, perfect mathematical forms inside each other. Uh, but I am really aware from having worked 20 years on the time wave how woolly it gets out there in the numbers as when you're looking for correlations, you know. And uh, 
there are a whole bunch of these things. There are the people in New Zealand with the world grid system. There's uh, the whole Jose Arguelles cosmology. Uh, there's uh, Ospensky was an early one uh, in search of the miraculous. Yeats' book of vision is a complex mathematical thing explaining the cosmos. And uh, th- th- there seems to be something in us that we are systematizers, we produce systems, and these are integrated systems of means. And the only thing you can do is lay them before your fellow monkeys and see what goes on. Uh, And I usually am a reluctant participant. I'm not much fun when it comes to weird ideas because I just pour cold water on them. Uh, For instance, right now my mail is running pretty heavily toward people who want to inform me about and convert me to uh, the works of Zachariah Sitchin, who, and this is a, do you know who I'm talking about? Well, this is a complex cosmology. It involves five or six books. It involves a lost planet which comes into the inner solar system every 35,000 years or so, which was responsible for Jesus and for... And it's a whole thing. And people who I, up to that point, had considered sane uh, (laughs) found it very interesting. And I was just... It was, you know... So uh, I think the only thing you can... And I am in this same position. I mean, someone could certainly react phobically to my thing. So I think what you have to say about these ideas is they just have to be uh, dropped out of the nest and and you see what can fly and what can't. Um, However, then here's a piece of advice which you may not need or want to hear. But this has worked for me. And it's not an orthodox piece of advice, but if you hear a claim that fascinates you or interests you, uh, like a claim, well, just as an example, the face on Mars or the time wave or Zachariah Sitchin's thing, yes, you should read the person's book and you should think about it on that level. But what you should also do is try to find out as much about this person as possible. It's very hard for people to hide their pasts. And if it turns out that your particular revelator uh, did some time in Tennessee for auto theft or uh, was last seen fleeing Germany with a valise of cash, then you, you know. And this is, was very effective for me with the crop circles. An investigation of the histories of the major personalities was a a journey into, I can't even find words to describe it, but that's the thing to look at. Look at the people, look at their lives, their credit histories, their bank accounts, and then judge their cosmogonic visions. Some people would probably say that's unfair, but in a sense it goes back to what I said a couple of days ago about aesthetics. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the revelation of the mystery, one thing is for sure, it will not be tacky. It won't be tasteless. 
You know, it won't be wearing sequins, for God's sake. Uh, it, 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 it won't pass out 10% discount coupons. Oh, sorry. Will it charge it all? <laughs> Will it charge it all? <laughs> I was at, I taught, where I pulled out is I was at one of these expos, you know, that are around. And, and I toured the thing, and if you ever go to one of those things, they are horrendous. I mean, Moldavite suppositories and, and just the damnedest stuff. And, uh, and I was making my way through the booths, the various therapies, channelings and revelations, and this w- young woman in a short skirt rushed out and took me by the elbow and she said, excuse me, sir, could I interest you in elective cosmetic surgery? And I said, no. And she said, well, how about the drawing for the Camaro? And I said, no, no but that's all right. The marketplace has always been a noisy place. Yeah. Uh, This is just uh, sort of to illustrate an example of this time stuff we're talking about. Two years ago, I was driving a city bus, and when you drive a city bus, you have a computer printout that tells you exactly what minute to be where. Now, there's not many jobs like that, so you always have to be aware of time. I had driven this route for three months, and I left the terminus at the same time I'd always left. This is a trolley bus. It has a speed governor on it and goes on wires. You can't go more than 60 clicks. It always takes within 30 seconds to get to the next timing point. One day, I was meditating at work. My mother told me not to do this. (laughs) And I left on time, and I got to the timing point six minutes early and I picked up 10 people. Now, I don't know how that happened or what happened, but it seemed to me it was a slip in time. The next day, I'm sitting in the cafeteria, I have to go up to this bus, inspect it, and leave at a certain time. I'm eating a sandwich, I think, oh, I've got 15 minutes, and I look at the clock, it's five minutes after I'm supposed to leave. So I freak out, run out, get on the bus, leave 10 minutes later than I ever have, and get to where I'm going 10 minutes earlier. (laughs) Now, at the same time, I thought this was peculiar, so I started asking everybody I knew, and I found four people who had a routine such that they knew what time things happened. One guy always took an hour and 20 minutes to get to work, for example. He left one morning, and he got there 45 minutes early. And I just offer this as an example of the fact that this idea of physics being constant has to do whether you believe it or not and pay attention to it. And if you change your own relationship to time and space, well, I I took a whole busload of people with me. (laughs) (laughs) Call Hollywood. something is slipping no, there are, as people's minds open up. I think there are roving discontinuities called cosmic giggles that are definitely there. Yeah. Same thing happened to me twice. I gained uh, once 20 minutes that I couldn't have possibly gained, and another time an hour and 15 minutes. Maybe well, from that's very interesting. Uh, too bad this is a population with such a high incidence of drug abuse. 
Terence, is there a parallel to the, the, the concept of the Eastern concept of the big mind uh, and the network system? There seems to me to be one. Well, yeah, one of the things I think you that's happening. going on there that may be relative to all this? The, the engineering mentality, the male engineering mentality, always is trying to duplicate in technology what already exists in nature. So, you know, back 15,000 years ago when the partnership society was in place and everybody was rigged out with psilocybin, they were participating in what I call the Gaian mind, the, the, the uh, flow of energy and information between the, popula the human population and the rest of the animal and plant and and natural world. Well, then we fell away from that into the existential condition of history, but it's always stuck with us. And our desire, you know, to string wires, to talk to each other over distances and send pictures and be integrated in our faith that data is somehow important is all part of this effort to mirror in our technology the guy in mind. It's sort of like, you know, they say men always seek in their mates the image of their mother. Well, this was sort of happening for us on a cultural scale. In our technology, we're always trying to create uh, a path back into nature. And uh, many people think of the internet or think of computers as masculine and so forth. They are not at all. It's an incredible feminizing influence. McLuhan understood this very well. He believed that the worldwide rise of electrical networks could be correlated to the descent of the Holy Ghost. He thought we were living in the age of the Holy Spirit, that electricity is the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's abstract when you're talking about telegraphs and that sort of thing. But when you're talking about the internet, you realize, you know, we really are mental creatures. And, uh, and so we are apparently creating a shamanic dimension that is culturally sanctioned because we, don't, we say we don't have to take a drug because we're so phobic of drugs. But the smart people know, the pharmacologists and the electronic, the nanotechnological engineers know that the difference between a drug and a computer is that you can swallow one and you can't swallow the other one. And that's the only difference. And they're working to correct that problem. <laughs> the drugs of the future will be computers. The computers of the future will be drugs, you know. There'll be patches that you paste on your forehead or the back of your thumbnail. Uh, so really, and the other thing is that keeps us calm is that we can see the electronic infrastructure. We can see the phone lines, we can see the boxes and the keyboards, but that's all about to disappear. The very, a very active frontier now is uh, ma uh, mind-machine interfacing where, you know, basically by wrinkling your brow and squinting and squirming, you run your software. And uh, the boxes can disappear and will disappear. And I, we've talked in these 
gatherings many times about an, a very obvious future coalescence of technology where what you have when you're eight years old or something is you have a very small operation which puts something like a contact lens not on your eye but on the inside of your eyelid. It's like a black contact lens so that when you close your eyes there are menus hanging in space. That's your interface. That's your doorway to the internet. And, you, and then you just take off uh, from your jump site out into cyberspace. This is not out of reach. Believe me, if it mattered as much as blowing up little brown people somewhere, we would have it in our hands today. It's just a matter of committing capital investment and resources to do. Uh, the keyboard is is uh, run by looking at the screen, and the thing is tracking your eye movements. There is no keyboard, huh? Yeah, it's a bio biofeedback control of machines, but not little PCs, but world-spanning data networks that are in three dimensions and with graphically rendered uh, environments that are extremely high-density data that cannot, in fact, be told from reality, except that it's been put through such an outlandish design process that you could never mistake it for reality uh, unless you were raised in international airport arrival concourses. <laughs> the, the advertising world has a, a, a equipment in place that they can monitor where you look at certain products on a screen. Mm -hmm. so certainly, you could, that would be easy to do. I mean, oh yeah, this is, this is all coming. And so then the question is, as the internet fades away in terms of boxes and flickering screens and becomes more and more uh, 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 transparent implants in your body, then your identification will be total with this global environment. And you will think of yourself as a person with two minds. M the individual mind and the collective mind, previously called the unconscious, yeah, and previously unaccessible except through psychotherapy, dreams, or drug use, but suddenly put online as a 24-hour-a-day utility for those who need to uh, use it. Bizarre, yes, yes. but uh, what isn't? <laughs> you know, I just wanted to mention that if anyone wants to get further into these ideas, there's a, William Gibson's novels are a good place to begin, a Neuromancer, for example. Yeah, and I noticed there's a new virtual reality novel out called Rim that I haven't read, but it's published by my publisher, Harper, so I'll plug it anyway. Uh, but, yeah, and so what I see really is that there was a bifurcation almost a gender-based bifurcation. Uh, and this male-dominant thing, which is all about controlling matter and energy and, and mathematically formal descriptions of nature and so forth, what it's going to do is it's going to deliver us back to the high Paleolithic. But it will be uh, a, a totally established and hardwired technology. And so then you see history will be revealed to have been uh, 
of all things, a Viconian recirculation, a return back to our origins. That's why I say Western man, the parable for Western civilization is the parable of the prodigal son. That's who we are. We left the family fold, the flocks and the filial obligations, and we descended into matter and made a long, long journey of understanding, which is meaningless unless we return to our origins. And then, you know, it can be used to, uh, to enrich and, and broaden the human experience. Something so extraordinary is happening on this planet. I mean, you know, for hundreds of millions of years, biology flowed across the surface and species advanced and retreated and sensory organs were refined and redefined and so forth and so on. But uh, about 35, 50,000 years ago, language broke loose. And language is the, the sheer will of information itself to transform itself. I mean, we are, uh, our medium is meat, but we are made of information, you know, and that information could be fed into a computer, crystallized into a virus. Uh, what we are is a long message that is being typed out in proteins by thousands of ribosomes coordinated over time. We are sort of like a phonograph record. And when you're young, you know, certain enzyme systems, certain genes are turned on. And then you pass into midlife, other genes are turned on, certain genes are turned off. It's like a melody, theme and variation being brought back, the theme being enriched and worked. And then finally, the whole thing builds to a crescendo and then one by one the genes are turned off and the audience tugs on its overcoats and cabs are hailed and people go home for the evening. But that, that's what you are. You're a story, a piece of code being run in the great computer of, uh, of the world. And like the self-transforming machine elves in the DMT trance who can make things with language, so too we can make things with language. We can coax ideas into matter and make engines and dynamos and transmitters and oscillators and all these things, yeah. What you would like, you haven't mentioned at all about relating all this in terms of, of uh, health, of, of medicine. I mean, because there's so much of that going on now with Chopra's work and and so much, and I don't know if that's you consider that hoochie-coochie. No, no, I'm, that's different. But you know what uh, I'm saying? There's well, so much now going into, into the holistic, or not just, I'm not talking about systems. I'm talking about the the cell, like Chopra talks about the, the cell and, and its uh, ability to uh, hear. Well, I think there's a general spreading awareness of awareness in biology. And the old ideas of a system of integrated organs has given way to, you know, a holistic model. And uh, so much can just be done with information in terms of, like, if you eat right, if you behave right, if you monitor yourself, if you exercise, uh, we can know a great deal more about ourselves. 
than we ever could uh, before. Uh, the whole um, thrust of novelty is toward a kind of platonic perfection, and it means perfection of the body as, uh, as well. Uh, how this will look, I'm not sure. Uh, maybe the body can become superconducting. Uh, that's a claim I would have to see before I believed. I'm sure we'll have people coming down the pike who claim they're superconducting. Essentially, breatharians claim that, but yeah, then yeah. they were cornered down at Baskin Robbins. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah. that, that's also how long that, that the human body can live. I mean, they're, they're talking about, the, in Chopra's view, that their age is limitless. There should be no real death. Well, I think, the, I think that that's quite within reach, but I'm puzzled by the ethics of it. That's what I mean, I'm I, I think that if you don't die, you miss the point. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, we can live yeah. for a long time. Yeah, I mean, oh, well, that, that's, I mean, that's true. Well, but there certainly are immortalists mm-hmm. running around, people who have wild hopes. To me, that's an incredibly egomaniacal wish because death is nature's way of getting rid of uh, worn out. I mean, you know, part of what's wrong with our society is that people aren't retiring and moving on. They can, we can, we're becoming a society ruled by octogenarians and older because medicine has made that possible. and it's paradoxical that in an age when there is so much impetus for change, uh, people hang on so long uh, and at, at the top. And they were hanging on longer and longer and longer. So. Yeah, which frustrates more and more generations building up behind. I mean, it's called the Charles Windsor problem. Uh, Some of the immortalists that I've talked to plan on ascending the body in 2012. <laughs> Or thereabouts, well, as opposed to dying. Yes, one thing that's going to happen that my theory predicts, but that doesn't make my job any easier, is that as we get closer and closer to 2012, uh, hysteria will build and claims will multiply. And it's just going to become a circus. Uh, I've already in my life realized that apparently I've become involved with or set in motion something that will probably outlast me and I'm looking for high ground. Uh, I, I am very happy to be a, to a cultural commentator from the side of my volcano in Hawaii, but uh, I don't want to move among the seething masses preaching the approaching apocalypse and, uh, uh, you know, anointing bishops and that sort of thing. I think that's absolutely nuts. For me, I want to treat it as a kind of event in the world of physics, sort of to say, well, the Earth is on a collision course, not with an asteroid, not with a black hole, but with a very large question mark. And this will impact uh, in December 2012. But I, I, we are just, I can tell that probably my ideas and these kinds of ideas are in fact going to get more than a fair hearing. 
they're probably going to become the kernels of obsession for for many lightly delicately balanced people and uh, that's why i stress you know the scientific approach evidence what can you show me everybody stay calm no wild uh claims and then if it turns out to be all malarkey nevertheless we will have navigated one of the most narrow necks in the history of consciousness and perhaps these faiths are like crutches once you are able to get hobble forward without their use you can fling them away and think no more about it but you know even the most rational among us can hardly fail to notice that we are we have backed ourselves into one hell of a position and how are we going to get through this and maintain our human dignity i mean are we going to allow millions billions of people to slip into starvation and disease are we going to practice triage on entire sectors of the planet and withdraw resources so that the the uh white industrial democracies can ride through the waves of chaos i mean uh it's very important that we not only preserve the human genome it's important that we pr- preserve human values uh, through all of this and i think realizing that we are caught in a process of metamorphosis and transformation not of our responsibility is the basis for uh uh the attitudes of confidence and uh, an anticipation that that will be necessary and that will allow us to be exemplars for the society and then at the core of all of this is of course the evidence which lies to my mind in the psychedelic experience i mean you know people can say we're bananas or misguided or whatever but if they haven't been there it's hard to understand the basis of their criticism because to explore our mystery you don't have to sweep up around the ashram for 12 years or kiss the feet of some beady-eyed weasel in a dhoti none of that <laughs> our thing is accessible you know you make the decision you take it you shut your mouth and it happens and and uh, anybody who criticizes that without having the experience is in a curiously uh unbalanced position i think this is a dependable mystery this is what i sought my entire life i mean this was not in the church this was not in india uh this was not to be found uh until i was willing to submit myself to the experience of eating something which grows in dung <laughs> and then it 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 was there that's the humbling that has to take place and the huge emphasis in the new age on doing it on the natch you know is a a form of spiritual materialism i mean what is the center yeah what naturally oh, say how oh. i i don't need to take drugs i do well this is a form of spiritual materialism because what is the central faith of the new age there is no inside and no outside 
Well, until you mention drugs, and then suddenly this distinction has the dovecote all in a flutter. The state's not possible to reach through a meditation process? I don't think so. If I were able to reach it by any other means than pharmacology, I would check myself in somewhere. We do, you do not want these states to be... We're not talking about... I don't think people understand how entirely radical the psychedelic flash is. It is not something you want spontaneously hanging around as a consequence of your good works and clean diet. I don't think so. What about the age-old, you know, the problem, you always come, we always come down. You know, we get high, we have that great experience, and then we come back to reality. Well, sex is like that. Youth is like that. Going to Venice is like that. <laughs> Uh, the law of unfolding seems to be, you know, good times, bad times, ebb and flow. Uh, nothing lasts. I mean, if you want a piece of psychedelic truth that is somewhat sobering, I mean, I, I, this is what I have taken away, and I guess I should leave you with this thought. I think you apply it in your life, and I also think that you look back on it and you understand. You know, Proust said, nothing is understood until it is remembered, and that's certainly true of, of psychedelic experiences. But nothing lasts. You know, not your friends, not your enemies, uh, nothing lasts. And we deny this. And yet that's the great psychedelic truth. And if you can face it in every moment and live it, you will have a very, very complete experience of existence. You will ride the Tao toward the concrescence and be able to live in, its, in the light of its anticipation. And this, I believe, makes for a healthy life full of lots of laughs, and uh, that's basically uh, what we're striving for here. Uh, the best idea, the truest idea, uh, will feel right. So thank you all very, very much for coming to this. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Well, I guess that isn't just uh, psychedelic people who understand that. Us dusty old farts understand it even better. And if you're an old psychedelic person, well, you've most likely learned that life is mainly about letting go of things. Uh, material things, relationships, friends, places you live, jobs, and most importantly, I think, letting go of old ideas, beliefs that no longer serve you very well. It's really amazing how much more interesting and enjoyable life becomes the more things you're willing to let go of. But you already know all of this, so uh, let's move on. I'll bet that uh, back there a little bit when Terence was describing his idea of a black contact lens inside your eyelid, uh, one that would provide drop-down menus when you closed your eyes, well, I'll bet that you were thinking the same thing I was thinking, Google Glasses. One of our fellow saloners who has been testing Google Glasses lately tells me that they provide a really wonderful experience. 
So, I'd like to think that the inspiration for Google Glasses may have come from one of Terrence McKenna's workshop, where one day some young geek who was in attendance became inspired with Terrence's fantasy. Actually, if the truth be known, I suspect that there is a whole legion of geeks out on the West Coast and in Silicon Valley who at one time or another heard Terrence speak. And uh, when you go back and listen to his rap about the global network with everyone connected, and then you recall that he was saying this back in December of 1994, and then look at the state of our tech back then compared with where we are today, well, my guess is that the lilting words of the Bard McKenna were catalysts for many of the wonderful toys that you and I are playing with right at this very moment. So, if you happen to be one of those good people, why don't you uh, leave a comment with the program notes for this podcast and uh, tell us about it. And, as you know, you can get to our program notes via psychedelicsalon.us, all one word, psychedelicsalon.us, or .com, .net, or .org. Uh, I think they'll all get you to the same place. But uh, getting back to one of the comments that we just heard Terrence make about populations where mutants lived within them for a long time before events gave them an advantage, well, howdy, fellow mutant. (laughs) Because if you're listening to this podcast, you most likely fit into that category, one in which I'm proud to belong myself, I should add. So here's to a world led by us psychedelic mutants. But now that I think about it, uh, I, for one, have no desire to lead anybody anywhere. Uh, Maybe what we are really searching for is a world in which each and every one of us will be left alone to pursue whatever it is that interests us, as long as we don't impinge on anyone else's right to do the same thing. In other words, anarchy. Nonviolent, small-a anarchy. Or, for a step even beyond that, (laughs) I'll leave you with one of my little brother's witticisms. Down with anarchy. (laughs) And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.